0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Ann Fabian on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Skull Collectors, Race, Science, and America's Unburied Dead. I suspect that many people who listen to this podcast took an anthropology class during college, one of the sub-disciplines of anthropology is physical anthropology, and that is the measurement and analysis of human bodies, and especially human bodies of different types, not only male and female, but also human bodies from different parts of the world, what are sometimes called races. This book is an attempt to understand the very early history of physical anthropology in the United States, and it focuses on a fellow named Morton, who is among the most interesting I have heard about while doing this show. Morton collected skulls, and he collected literally a couple thousand of them, and Anne does a really terrific job of explaining why he did that, how he did that, and what it meant in the American context. The world in which he collected skulls is, in a certain sense, gone today. Morton was something of a racist, and we hope that that is Passing at least, but in another way, the world that he lived in is still with us. Morton was a scientist, an empiricist, and he was interested in finding out about the varieties of humans and where they had come from. So he's a peculiar contradiction, and I think an enlightening one for anybody who's interested in 19th century science. There's a lot of other material in the book, which is really terrific. It's a wonderful read, and I hope that you go and buy it. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Anne. Hello, Marshall. How are you today?
1: I'm fine, thanks.
0: Good. I should tell our listeners that we have Ann Fabian on the show today, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, The Skull Collectors, Race, Science, and America's Unburied Dead. I can tell you, as I said, it's a it's a really terrific book. Uh, the history of 19th century American, I guess I would call it mm, ethnology or something like this, I don't know, skull science, we don't have skull science anymore, is a very, very interesting one. And the people that Ann writes about, uh, are people like um you probably have never met they they were scientific in spirit and they were working hard to find the truth but they had some rather odd presumptions and they were working with some rather odd materials in some rather peculiar ways so while in one sense we can reach across time and admire them at least i did uh in the other sense they're they're really rather odd ducks i would say um uh, with one fellow morton in particular we'll talk about him Quite a bit, but it's a fascinating book, and I encourage you to read it. And it's available from the University of Chicago Press right now, so you can uh, go there, go to Amazon, and and buy it. So, Anne, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I'm an American cultural historian. I teach at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, uh, where we teach masses of really wonderful undergraduates. I love working in this large public institution. I have a PhD uh, in American Studies from Yale, kind of wandered into American studies uh, with a background in philosophy. I'd really taken only one American history course uh, required of undergraduates, but uh, the American studies program was uh, kind enough to welcome those of us who sort of staggered from other fields. Um, This was in the late 70s and early 80s when the academy, or at least the Americanists among us, were pulled either toward literary theory or toward... uh, Happy quantification of social history. I kind of navigated between these two poles and wrote a dissertation about gambling, uh, actually about people who gambled, and then wrote about gambling. I was trying to figure out whether it was a sort of back door into understanding economic history. People used to tease me and say I was writing the cultural history of economic man. So I decided to define myself as a cultural historian, and then wound up writing a second book about. Uh Beggars who wrote their stories and sold their books instead of telling their stories for free, so I was really working in the sort of nether worlds of the literary and somehow uh through a kind of roundabout way, I wound up writing about skull collecting. A friend of mine described me uh, kindly as an alchemist of the ordinary, but my mother used to always ask me why I didn't write books about things people already wanted to know about. <laughs> I think she had in mind a biography of John Adams or maybe Thomas Jefferson. She said, your books are very interesting, but you always have to explain what they're about. Yeah. So happy yeah. to explain what this one is about. Yeah,
0: my mother would always say, uh, you know, are you still in school? Um, <laughs> exactly. are, are you still in school? Uh cause I can't I've lost track. I don't I mean, what do you do now? I'm like, okay, well uh, so cool. you know, yeah, I don't know. It's a midwestern thing, I think. I don't know if you're where you're from, but uh uh-huh. I grew up in California. Skeptical. She's very skeptical of the whole thing. Um and, and maybe for good reason. I don't know. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write the uh this book, um, the Skull Collectors.
1: Well I was uh, doing some research on the beggars' books at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, which is a terrific library. In fact, they have just about everything printed in the American colonies and in the United States um, up to 1876. And I, for some reason, put in a call slip for Samuel George Morton's book, Crania Americana, which is crania about American skulls. And it's an enormous coffee table book, weighs about 10 pounds, and it's quite astonishing. It was published in eighteen thirty nine and it has these absolutely beautiful lithographs of human skulls. Page after page of these sort of lovingly produced lithographs. I kept looking at this going, This is mighty odd. Um and that the, these were actually people's heads. So the book really began with a really simple question, which is how in the world would you go about compiling a collection of human skulls? Well That was a simple sort of question, but it actually took me another eight or nine years. I was dean for a while, um, and now I can actually figure out an answer to that question uh, because, as you said in the beginning, people knew they were doing something strange when they gathered up the unburied human dead, um, and they wrote about it. So I began to sort of dig around in the archives, and I found quite a few letters where people talked about what they were doing when they were packing up the dead. Mm -hmm. And they're packing up the dead and shipping them, uh, in this case, to Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. which was the collection that I looked at uh, Mm -hmm. principally in this book, how do you collect, you know, when Morton died in 1851, he had about um, 1,500 human skulls, uh, basically from all over the world, although the bulk of the collection was American heads, particularly Native American heads. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that's another piece of the story there were there were reasons why certain people got collected Mm -hmm. and not others
0: so why don't we begin with just a little background um to what i think we would call in the late 19th century physical anthropology but it wasn't called physical anthropology at the time when and why did people begin to collect and study human heads who were morton's predecessors if any
1: there were a handful. I mean, one 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 thinks of the sort of enlightenment project of collecting and mapping the world, but it wasn't until really late in the 18th century that people began to collect the human dead. It was how do you put human beings into this larger natural project? So there's a, a sort of hesitation about exactly whether humans belong in the sort of animal world. I mean, we can see this um, Come into fruition around Darwin and the sort of debates over Darwin. But these early collectors were sort of hesitant to add human beings to the sort of map of the natural world. And so Morton's initial predecessors um, was a um, German physician, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who publishes the first sort of catalog of human crania. Uh, one of the problems with collecting the human dead is. Uh, Sailors, people don't like to carry them around. Principally, (laughs) if you're trying to collect skulls from the Pacific, people have lots of problems because sailors tend to throw them overboard. And so there's lots of instructions to officers saying, well, you're going to collect these human remains. Um, You can collect human aboriginal skulls from Australia, but you're going to have a hard time um, getting them all the way back to Europe because sailors aren't going to like it and they're going to toss them overboard. But here's what you do and here's how you convince them that this is a kind of weird project for scientific gentlemen. And so, you know, Blumenbach trains, trains um, physicians that are sort of scattering out in the world. So this becomes a, really a story that's about the expansion of European empires. And so he has sort of people out on these various frontiers, and they'll send him back a handful of skulls. So he famously has a skull from the Caucasus. Uh, who becomes the sort of mother of the Caucasian race? And he decides, or these racial categories, that this is the most beautiful skull that he has. It's symmetrical, it seems lovely. And so this small sort of Caucasian head, this woman from the Caucasus, becomes for him the Caucasian race. And he's the one who begins to map the world into sort of five separate racial types the Americans, um, the Ethiopians, the. Um, wait. The, sorry, the Caucasians, the Americans, the Ethiopians, the Mongolians, and then a really sort of mixed category, the melee, mm-hmm. or the Pacific peoples. And so he doesn't have any Pacific skulls. There are just very few of them. And he has a handful, and he really doesn't have any American skulls either, uh, partly because he doesn't have these representative bodies. He only has the representative bodies of people who happen to die and come into his possession. So Morton subscribes to um Blumenbach's books in the seventeen sort of that begin to appear for Blumenbach in the seventeen nineties. Uh Morton gets them in the United States in the eighteen twenties, um and eighteen thirties and realizes that he has an opportunity to contribute to this scientific conversation because he has easy access um to American skulls. Mm -hmm. Principally because of well, for in his case, uh, the wars in sort of Florida and the South, the Seminole Wars in Florida and Georgia. So he begins to get skulls um, shipped to him from sort of doctors with the frontier um, armies, and begins to sort of amass this American collection. As as he put it at one point. Um, I was giving a lecture on comparative anatomy, and I found that I could neither beg nor borrow a melee skull in philadelphia and I mm-hmm. love this beg nor borrow mm-hmm. i 've got around got a melee skull for me <laughs> so so he says, and on, at that point, I resolved to put together a collection for myself and and so this becomes the impetus for him to sort of gather up um, a sort of representative world population of human heads, uh-huh. and this is what he does. Uh-huh.
0: What what question um were Blumenbach and later Morton and then I guess later even physical anthropologists themselves, once physical anthropology is established, what question were they trying to answer by looking at this um really quite narrow anatomical feature, that is the the human head? Why didn't they I I I guess that the my question answers itself I was gonna say what well, why didn't they choose the femur but, uh, so, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What were they trying to determine with this classification and the measuring of these skulls?
1: Well, obviously, I mean, there's, that's a, it's a really wonderful, rich sort of question, because you can think of the heads all the way from, or skulls, the heads all the way from a simple physical object to their sort of deeper kind of symbolic meaning. And if you start there with the symbolic meaning, it seems really appropriate that these Kind of enlightened or late enlightenment scientists are, are turning to the head. They're fascinated with the brain. The head seems to be the seat of human reason. It seems to be the highest possible thing that you could think about if you're sorting out human beings. A femur is a little bit. It, it, a femur doesn't work visually, so you have a kind of visual iconography that can go all the way back, you know, to Dutch still life paintings, and Memento Mori. You know, think of Saint Jerome in his study or in his cave, you know, contemplating what a skull is, and so. You know, it flips over into the sort of symbolic or cultural weight of sort of contemplating a skull. It also seems to be that thing that for them would be the most marked thing of racial difference. You know, what is it? Why do faces look so different? I mean, physical anthropologists will still tell you now that there is a difference in skull shape, um, Where Morton and his colleagues went so terribly wrong was in trying to argue that the principal feature of these skulls is brain size, and so Mm -hmm. therefore we're going to, you know, fill them and measure their internal capacity in some way that will show you who are superior and who are inferior races. That's just loopy. But physical anthropologists will tell you that there's some evolutionary advantage in certain kinds of configurations of skulls. And so the most marked ones will often be a a visible difference between polar skulls, say, and equatorial skulls, and that um, shape and size seem to have something to do with um, proper humidity of the brain or proper Mm -hmm. temperature of the brain. So there's a certain evolutionary advantage in certain kinds of skull shape or size. And Morton wasn't going to be able to see that, but, Mm -mm. you know, it's a funny thing that as physical anthropology emerges in the late 19th and early 20th century, particularly in the hands of another rather eccentric collector in his own right, Alistair Lischka, he looks back at Morton and said, well, Morton is sort of the... Father of physical anthropology, only he's a father who had no offspring mm-hmm. because he got distracted by the unscientific criteria of phrenology. So the sort of physical anthropologists, serious scientific physical anthropologists, sort of disavow, they kind of nod to Morton, but um, mm-hmm. disavow their connection to him at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I actually tried to be kind of kind to these people. In most of the literature, people like Morton are kind of dismissed because they appear to be the fathers of a kind of, of, of scientific racism. But I actually tried to figure out what they were doing on their own terms. And certainly there is an insidious a sort of white racism that runs through what he does that seems both in some ways typical of this period of many white Americans, um, but at the same time somewhat understandable as he pushes toward these answers. And he he is indeed trying to figure something out. And in a couple of the chapters I wrote about him, I mean, I try to give a sense of both what it is he's trying to do and then what is despicable about him. And, you know, I I found this really interesting um young writer, uh, African American writer in Philadelphia who who shares a printer and publisher with Morton and I and and he really sees these scientists dismissing him and he writes beautifully about how painful and horrible that is to see the cold glance of men like Morton who will never admit this young ambitious man into their company and I I I knew they shared the same little printer in Philadelphia, so I tried to imagine, you know, this young man looking at Morton, Morton never seeing him as they sort of passed in the print shop mm-hmm. door. But it's a it's a complicated world in Philadelphia, and you know, Morton is in 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 some ways an interesting man, very friendly with his um, kind of peers, and then very dismissive of people who are not, you know that he thinks are inferior to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see.
0: You mentioned phrenology. How is um, skull collecting at this point uh, connected to phrenology? And maybe for those who don't know, what is phrenology?
1: Ah, phrenology. Well, I, I, could, I also try, try to take seriously phrenology. If anybody's ever passed those nice... Um, plaster heads in the sort of charlatan fortune teller windows that divide uh, the brain into your amative part and your acquisitive part those are phrenologists' um, heads. And it actually grows out of a kind of what shall I say, uh, a legitimate sort of science of of cranial location um, that emerges in Europe in the early part of the 19th century. It seems to be a sort of popular sense and popular understanding that actually the brain is the organ of the mind, that we could understand certain things about where ideas and notions or thoughts are located within the physical organ of the brain. And it, and it has a really serious sort of following um, in Europe, in, uh, in France, and in England, in Scotland, uh, for the early years of the 19th century, and it has a much, much longer life in the United States. Uh, people often, and, and phrenologists would go around and they would feel the bumps on your head and tell you that you really had the makings of being a great general, uh, or a great artist or a brilliant conductor or a brilliant composer. You just had to realize and find your talents. Um, it, it, it obviously turned into a sort of charlatan pseudoscience. People will laugh at it and say, Oh, well, they were just flatterers. You would stand up, you, Marshall, could have your skull read, and they would tell you what a brilliant writer and uh, fine thinker you were. Uh, often. Wait a minute. What I, li- I like
0: these people all of a sudden. Can we? Where, where are yeah. they exactly? Yeah,
1: go ahead. <laughs> we could find them. They could have a yeah. second career yeah. going around reading our skulls now. Yeah. Um, if you look at portraits of 19th century figures you'll often see they have these wonderful kind of high foreheads, um, people will suggest that 19th century people who looked at those portraits would say, ah, yes, I could see that he has, you know, fine talents, a highly moral man. And it's from phrenology that we still get our notions of the highbrow and the lowbrow. So we have our highbrow sense mm-hmm. of high intelligence. Um, And it it had a kind of whole publishing apparatus, the Journal of American Phrenology, that persisted for a long time in the United States. Phrenologists would travel with skulls. Back around about to your your question, they would have casts of famous people's skulls. Let me show you a cast of Mm -hmm. Napoleon's skull, and I will tell you here are his qualities. They would also have a handful of real human skulls, but they'd often picked up um, from um, execution grounds. So executioners were one of the main sources of skulls that would move through this. So you, if you you were a really good kind of traveling lecturer, you would have a few skulls of famous criminals. And you would set them up on a table, and you would say, oh, well, here's this criminal. We can see his murderous propensities are here in this part of his skull. And people could go up and feel the lumps. Um, it had a kind of self-improvement thing about it, saying, well, if you would only work on your um, whatever, your amativeness, that part of your brain will develop and you can feel the lump grow in that part of your skull. Now, people dismiss this as absurd. How could the soft <laughs> part of the brain, you know, develop the skull? A phrenologist had funny little answers saying, well, yes, when you, your amativeness, your loving part of you develops, it eats into your skull a little bit. Your brain will eat into your skull and your bump your love, bump of love will grow a little larger. Um, it, it clearly it pulled off toward its charlatan pseudoscience side, but it really was in the beginning a kind of serious attempt to locate a certain qualities or even certain um, perceptive parts of the brain. So, phrenologists might travel around and uh, look at a blind person or some of the Early writings feel a little bit like Oliver Sacks. You say they found somebody eccentric and they wanted to figure out what part of the brain had been affected physically by this or that manifestation. Mm -hmm. And Morton, back to Morton, Morton becomes um, friends with the traveling phrenologist George Combe, who's quite a wonderful man, born in Scotland, decides that phrenology is his own way of saving the world. And as European uh, intellectuals sort of begin to dismiss phrenology, he comes to the United States and spends um, 1839, 1840 traveling around the United States giving these lectures where people would come and hear him. And he would give his sequence of lectures in Boston and then in New York and then in Philadelphia. And then he wrote a sort of series of commentaries on what he had to say about the United States. And he became Morton's good friend, uh, particularly when Morton felt that he was going broke and didn't know what to do about his skulls or about Crania Americana um, and Combe would try to write to him and encourage him to keep up with his study. And he appended a kind of phrenological afterword uh, to Morton's book that said, "Oh yes, you know, here are the qualities of the races that we can see in this in these skulls. Like these people are good at calculating, or these people are good at thinking about the future. So, mm-hmm. therefore, their qualities are
0: here." Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, one question I wanted to ask because it's kind of interesting, uh, the Morton wrote before Darwin. Yes. yes. Uh, what did he believe about the origins of um, of life on Earth and uh, of uh, its various parts, and um, how does that relate to the study of skulls?
1: Uh, it's a really interesting question. So Morton's getting himself caught between um, what people will call a sort of monogenist position—that there was one act of creation, Adam and Eve. And somehow everybody everybody on Earth came out of Adam and Eve. So here you have a problem. Well, why do, they, why do they look so different? Why do we have these five different races that have come out of Adam and Eve? And there are various theories kicking around. If you want to hold on to the Adam and Eve story, if you want to hold on to a sort of young Earth notion, quickly these people have evolved. Well, it must be climate, something like that. So people will say, okay, people have come out of Adam and Eve, and somehow they wandered around the world. And climate has made them all look different. So Morton's moving toward what people will call a polygenist position. He he's never going to come out and fully say that, although his followers subsequently do. And that's that uh, the five races were each created for the different continents. So we have these a kind of busy creator Uh, We may only have one story in Genesis, but these other stories are probably kicking around out there. So we have five separate acts of creation that put these five races, uh, scatter them around the world. So this position, you could see it would raise certain little problems for those people who believed in a sort of literal biblical account of the world, We have five races. So Morton has a little exchange in letters with one of his friends where he says, you know, warns Morton about coming fully out with this polygenist position or multiple acts of creation. He says, Oh, you know, it will kick up a tremendous storm around your head, so you must be careful. But if you follow the racist argument that he's making, they have a really hard time pushing toward the kinship of all humanity. And this is where Frederick Douglass eloquently pushes back against Morton and wants, and will argue that if you are think of yourself as a good Christian believer in the literal account of the Bible, then we have to think of men as all one blood. So these two kind of scientific, bizarre scientific arguments are going to play through the racial politics of this period. So you're going to embrace them in different ways. So Morton, this is Morton's account of life on earth, although he sort of shrugs his shoulders about it a little bit, that they're these kind of Five, 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 five acts of creation that send human beings here and there. So we mm-hmm. have an Adam and Eve for each race. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So let's talk a little bit about the reception of Morton's work. Uh, we, we, if we read it today, we, we look at it and we say, well, that's kind of a curiosity, and it has it's kind of tinged with racism. H- how was it received at the time?
1: Uh, I got I actually got really interested in this. It wasn't anything that I expected. Anybody who sort of reads these these accounts of the development of racial science in the 19th century, Morton's Crania Americana is sort of a, one of the cornerstones of this intellectual, this unhappy intellectual edifice. What surprised me when I began to look at this, particularly reading Morton's correspondence, is he has a real hard time getting this book out into the world. Mm-hmm. So he publishes this lavish book in the midst of a terrible economic downturn, um, in, it appears in 1839, and it's really an expensive book. So, he wants to push these ideas out into the world, but nobody's buying his book. So, running through his correspondence says, oh, it's such a disappointment, nobody buys my book, I'm going to go broke, I put all my money in it. Um, so, I got really interested in the sort of, how how he finds a group of allies uh, who are going to push, carry these ideas out in the world. So you know scholars think a lot now about the circulation of ideas, and you know we can think of things going viral, but I got interested in how bad ideas as well as good ideas might circulate in the middle years of the nineteenth century so morton Morton is kind of what shall we say lucky in his friends he 's a very friendly man, so first he has George Combe, the phrenologist, who begins to take his ideas about skull difference out into the world, then he recruits a most extraordinary, odd fellow named George Glidden, who's a sort of popular Egyptologist, who's going around, he first comes to the United States as a sort of agent of the modernizing viceroy of Egypt. Uh, it's great for Morton to have him. He begins to ship Morton uh, dozens and dozens of skulls. Egypt Egypt is wonderfully awash in the dead. Egypt is our sort of place of the dead in in the sort of 19th century imagination, you think of the way Egyptian architecture appears in the United States. It appears as gates of cemeteries. It appears as prisons. It's sort of the place of the dead. So there's a fascination about Egypt. So George Glidden, Morton sets up a correspondence with George Glidden he sends him mummy heads. He sends him lots and lots of mummy heads from Egypt, and they become a piece of Morton's second book. But Glidden comes to the United States and travels uh, around the country in the 1840s giving wonderful popular lectures about Egypt. He has lots of Egyptian knickknacks, and he has lots of mummies. He's brought mummies with him, and he unwraps mummies. And Mm -hmm. this becomes a sort of popular pastime of sort of for entertainment in 19th century America. There's a, a really famous instance where he unwraps a mummy in Boston, and it's, it's, a, it's something that takes place over two or three days. They're quite popular in England as well. It's, a, it's billed as an Egyptian princess. People are coming out to see this, including, you know, the Harvard faculty, the president of Harvard, you know, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the Boston elite. So Glidden is slowly unwrapping this mummy. And by the third day, the mummy bandages fall off, and lo and behold, Mm -hmm. the so-called princess turns out to be a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, So quickly he he backs up and says, oh, no, it's just bad writing on the sarcophagus, this, you know, clearly this. But... It that doesn't do him in, uh, and people turn out. He goes up and down the Mississippi River. People turn out to hear him, and he's gonna—he's pushing Morton's ideas. He's pushing Morton's ideas for the antiquity of racial difference. That racial differences you know, dates from the dawn of creation, uh, that Caucasians were created by God to be the superior people. I can look at, you know, friezes and frescoes from Egypt, and they'll show you African people who are already servants and slaves. And so he, even though what these are are military things where they've captured People from sub-Saharan Africa, and so of course they're looking as though they're in an inferior position. Anyway, so but Gooden is using that, and he's quite a popular lecturer, so he'll push Morton's ideas. And then Morton gets a third ally um, in Lewis Agassiz, the mm-hmm. Harvard scientist, who arrives just at this point, and these and and sort of becomes the chief figure of a pre-Darwinian scientific world. And he. He goes to see Morton and embraces him as a fellow empiricist. He he likes the fact that Morton stares at his heads very carefully, looks at them... Puts them together and this this for Agassiz is the sort of ground of scientific analysis. Those people who can look carefully, describe precisely and and, and this is really what Morton does. He looks carefully, he describes precisely, and comes to erroneous conclusions mm-hmm. and in certain ways, we might say that Agassiz does that too, as he maps out a sort of what he thinks of as this sort of stable racial world and carries these sort of virulent racist assumptions mm-hmm. into that but Agassi takes Morton's ideas, too. So he, he gets these allies that sort of push his ideas out into the world. And it's because he's analyzed these skulls quite carefully that the ideas go on. People want to believe that there's something there that somehow... These skulls will contain a germ of truth that will help us sort out the confusing world of racial difference that we see around us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I was going to say while you were mentioning the way we look at them today, that is people like Agassiz and Morton, and that is that they were, you know, trying to answer uh, serious questions. And on the basis of faulty assumptions, reaching erroneous conclusions, I was thinking of myself and thinking, I'm probably doing that too. <laughs> and in 100 years, people will look back on my work and say, how could he have believed that? How so believe yeah, that? I think we're I all sort of trapped like that. Um, I'm not trying to be too sympathetic to these guys, but still, they, they are um, – I guess they're—I would call them serious, at least. Uh, they are serious. Yeah, yeah, I would call them serious people. So, the, the, let me—I I can't um, refrain from asking this question: Where did Morton get most of his skulls? How did he get them?
1: Well, actually, that's what really interested me. He—he he gets them from he, Morton. I suppose is a really friendly man, and has you know a web of connections that send out, uh, you know, sort of out into the world. So. He will, he's part of this sort of Philadelphia scientific establishment. He's a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences, and he's a member of the American Philosophical Society. And so that gives him a set of good connections. But here's how he gets his skulls. Actually, he gets them um, from uh, Army doctors who are kind of with the American Army out on the frontiers, and so they're going to collect for Morton. He gets them uh, from a wonderful sort of friendly uh, kind of Ornithologist who's operating under the shadow of John James Audubon, who's traveling out to Oregon. Uh, and he picks up some skulls for Morton and brings them back, as he said, I carried them in my reeking backpack and risked my life, but I was pleased to get a skull for you. Um, he, gets, he gets quite a few skulls from Peru. Peru was a sort of, uh, what shall I say, uh, a happy collecting site uh, for American collectors. Uh, partly because the cemeteries had been uh, looted for the gold that had been buried there. And so they seemed to be wide open for those kinds of collecting. He gets skulls um, of Native Americans who are being removed um, from the old southeast from Georgia under Jackson's um, orders. so as white settlers move into these places, uh, uh, Native American burial grounds are abandoned, and so people pull skulls out of those Native American burial grounds. He gets skulls from kind of, what do I want to say, aspiring intellectuals stuck out in the Midwest who are Mm -hmm. bored, uh, like a man in Indiana who's saying, well, there used to be some Native American burial grounds around here. I'm going to send you a skull. And then he tells him little notes about, oh, staring at the flies who seem to be dying of thirst and you can just see this poor man who wants to be part of this scientific conversation in Philadelphia so mm-hmm. people are sending these skulls they're they're sending these skulls to morton he gets a few in the very very beginning he gets a handful of african american skulls from sort of philadelphia almshouses and hospitals morton is a doctor and so he's part of this little world so when people die kind of without friends or family to take care of the body, Morton gets those skulls. He gets a handful of executioner skulls. Uh, He gets a few skulls from um, Indonesia, of all things, from a strange uh, traveling Dutch doctor named Jacob Dornick who comes to the United States with a collection of skulls from Indonesia. He's going to give some lectures, he says, on skulls. Nobody turns out to hear his lectures, so he decides he wants to sell his skulls to Morton so he could buy some rocks so we could talk about geology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Morton sort of bargains with him and doesn't really want to pay him for his skulls. But so the skulls begin to come in in these various ways. And I I got really interested by the fact that this population of skulls seemed always to be about people people. They seemed to come from people whose lives were disrupted Mm -hmm. by empire, by war, by disease. So the ornithologist who's in uh, Oregon looks at these villages uh, along the Columbia River, who've been whose populations have been decimated uh, either by influenza or malaria. Scholars aren't entirely sure. And he looks at them and he goes, "These people have died so much in this epidemic that they no longer are able to t- take care of the dead or keep watch over their cemeteries." This Sad fact: this fact that's so sad for them is actually good news for me as a collector. Mm-hmm. So, so he acknowledges that what part of this collection registers is the real violence and disruption of the 19th century. And this is what started to interest me about it, as, as much as the sort of scientific conclusions that the people were making. I got really interested in the the backstories of what was happening in the communities of those whose skulls were collected. Mm-hmm. The racial dimensions of the collection are also fascinating. Most most arguments are that Morton's racial ordering, which puts people of African descent at the bottom, plays out most harshly on communities of African Americans. Mm-hmm. This is true. Its immediate consequences are on the African American community. It shores up racist arguments in the sort of anti-abolitionist and slaveholder discourse that's kind of heating up in the 1840s and 1850s. But oddly enough, Morton's collection is principally made up of Native American skulls. Mm-hmm. So what they are, what they seem to represent in a sort of, we take it apart a little bit, is that African-Americans are more valuable alive than dead because mm-hmm. they're valued by white Americans like Morton for their labor. He also thinks that he knows what he needs to know about most African-Americans or most African people of African descent with just a handful of skulls. Mm-hmm. So, you know, African skulls will come to him wonderfully. A, a herpetologist, a man who's collecting snakes and lizards um, in Liberia, Sends him some skulls, some Native African skulls from Liberia, who had been the Native Africans who'd resisted the American settlement in Liberia, and they wind up in Morton's collection. Mm-hmm. So he has a handful of African skulls, but the bulk of this collection are these Native American skulls, because Native Americans actually are, to this generation of Americans, in many ways more valuable dead than alive. Mm-hmm. They're valued for their land. So the skulls in Morton's collection represent the people who have been pushed off their land. So the communities are no longer there to sort of guard the ancestors or take care of the burial places. So, you know, and they're they're exotic. So to a European audience, the fact that Morton has all these Native American skulls are what this is all about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one wonderful account of this traveling British guy who comes to Morton's collection looks at it and goes, well, you know, it's, it's, a kind of, it's kind of worth it if you are in Philadelphia, but I would not dare the ocean for it. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I always thought it stacked up like Michelin, one star, two star, yeah. three stars. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's Vaux Le Détour, but mm-hmm. not the Voyage. Right. So if you're in Philadelphia, go yeah. check out. Yeah. Uh, that out. So, that's how they come there.
0: Yeah, so uh, collectors love rarities. Um, among the people that Morton hung out with, Put it colloquially. Uh, were there kinds of um, skulls that were particularly sought after and prized? Like, oh, well, uh, he has an X skull. I would really uh-huh. love to get a hold of that.
1: Yeah, there's a a couple of ways of thinking about that. One is, you know, a skull with a story is more valuable than a skull without a story. A skull of a warrior is more valuable than a skull of a farmer. A skull of a man is more valuable than a skull of a woman. But the best, best ones, if you don't, I mean, a handful of celebrity skulls. I mean, celebrity skulls are good things, you know. You know about Descartes' skull kind of lurking around and, you know, after a while we have collections of celebrity brains. But for, for in Morton's world, partly what people want are flathead skulls. I mean, he has a few skulls with bullet holes, and those are always interesting. You know, if you could see something about what had happened to this person as a living individual, because otherwise they just threaten to fall into anonymity. Yeah. So, so so, flathead skulls are really, really valuable. So M- Morton has, you know, there's a collector in Boston, uh, Boston head of the and teaches at Harvard Medical School, John Collins Warren. And he has some nice flatheads. And Morton asked him if he could have some of his flattened, borrow some of his flattened skulls for his book. And John Collins Warren says, no way, you know, these are too valuable. So one of the things I did in this book, I mean, this book has a couple of... um, Meanders, I should say, and I got really caught up in this one long. I got caught up, caught up in a long meander about Fiji, but I also got caught up in a meander about a young flathead man uh, named William Brooks or Stumanu, which is his name, a Chinook from Oregon, who who comes back east with the Methodist missionaries in Oregon, and he's giving sermons. He, up and down the East Coast in 1839, trying to show Methodist congregations that their investment in this mission in Oregon is really worth it, and here he was converted, and here he's come, and he still has this artificially flattened skull because his mother had carried him in a cradle board as a baby, and so he, he was raised up to be a good member of his people who had artificially flattened skulls makes him something of an exotic. He seems to be sort of on this line between kind of a religious speaker and a sort of sideshow or freakish performer. He meets Morton. He's one of the few kind of living individuals other than Morton and his friends who shows up in Crania Americana. So in the long text of Crania Americana, Morton talks about this one day, blah, blah, blah. We were invited over to my friend's house, who happens to be the ranking American expert on turtles. The turtle man has this young this young man he's probably about eighteen or nineteen uh with his flattened head. They all go meet him. Morton said, "Oh, it's a remarkable thing you know he He seemed as intelligent as anybody that I ever met but uh Morton then looks at him and says, and the remarkable thing was his skull seemed to be the very Archetype, or the very prototype of this other flattened skull that I have, and I always loved that moment. It reminded me of the old <laughs> Warner Brothers cartoons where the hungry wolf looks at Porky Pig and sees him as sausages. So you know he sees. I was them just wa- I
0: was just watching those with my son. Just, yeah, I, I knew but, just what you're talking about. Yeah. The little
1: eyes. So, you know, here, he sees it stripped of his flesh. And then poor, poor Stumannu, William Brooks, dies. He dies in New York a couple weeks later. And so George Combe and Morton and all these people want his skull. They say, oh, huzzah, he's died. And here's a young man who's converted to Christianity, right. who seems by rights to be entitled to a good Christian burial. Right. He gets that burial only by the grace of a very eccentric character who took care of him at Belleville Hospital in the last days of his life. And he won't tell anybody where he's buried the body. And so he, Stu Manu, sort of escapes from the skull collectors who would have clearly prized his exotic head. I spent a long time kind of searching out this story, and I would find it, 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 you know, he's well known in Methodist Chronicles, but nobody ever thinks to look kind of what happens to him with his encounter with skull collectors. And I would go to the library. And I would find traces of him. And my poor husband, I would come home and say, found more of Stu Manu. And he would say, oh, spare me. Yeah, the really? story. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it was really interesting to sort of dig out um, the kind of pieces about what, what, how do we think about what happens to somebody like this mm-hmm their body after they die. So Mm -hmm. I I can learn from this to pay attention to the body.
0: You know, uh, one question that occurred to me while reading the book, um, I can certainly understand the religious objections to seeing uh, Christians, for example, uh, being not buried in this way, being denied uh, a proper Christian burial. That has real implications for one's soul and so on and so forth. But Today we have laws about what you can do with bodies. Were, were there Was there legislation then? I mean, did people say, you know, you just can't be doing this with human bodies? There are all kinds of restrictions on what you can do with bodies today. Did they have any sort of similar laws back then?
1: Well, I mean, we do be, We see the beginnings during this period of uh, certain things, that, anatomy acts that will allow certain bodies to be, you know, given to medical schools for dissection. Because people were stealing bodies, basically, you would have what they were called resurrectionists, and you would go dig them up. But there's no there's no law. There is custom. The, what what Morton is not, and nor are his collectors, violating any laws. They're acutely aware, and this really interested me. They're acutely aware that they're violating cultural customs. Mm-hmm. So it, collectors in Mexico will um, describe people watching them as they you know, rob these graves or the the army who goes out into the plains after the Civil War who become responsible, these army doctors bored in these frontier posts, become responsible for thousands and thousands of bodies being sent to Washington. But they, too, are acutely aware that they are violating some kind of cultural custom. And it's th- that line of cultural custom. That seems to acknowledge the common humanity of what we're doing, I mean the sort of you'll go back to the sort of earliest you know history of hominoid hominids hominids, and people argue that it's partly about burial that it's mm-hmm. partly about care of the dead and some sense of of a connection backward through time that marks humans yeah, but you know they these people are not they're not dealing in a world of legal restrictions, so You know, where this project backs up into the law is really about NAGPRA, the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. um, That was one of the sort of intellectual pushes toward my writing this book. Yeah, we'll
0: come to that in just a second. I want to ask one question before we leave Morton. What happened to his collection?
1: Uh, that 's actually really interesting so so Morton dies i mean, my book actually opens with morton 's death i try I tried to do exactly what you were saying i I looked at morton 's own morton 's friends come and- Um, actually do a little autopsy on him, which is written up, and they, you know, look at his nice brain, and they look at his nice heart, and and his withered lung, and, you know, his flabby liver, and these various things. So, but then he's buried. He's buried in, you know, Philadelphia's uh, Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is, you know, a good kind of garden cemetery that are beginning to dot the landscape. So, really, what's interesting is that Euro-Americans or white Americans are plotting their dead at this period into these beautiful cemeteries. And so it really is a way of claiming land and space. So, you know, what happens to Morton? So Morton dies. This is the principal uh, asset of his estate. His poor- He has all these children six or seven children, or surviving at this time. So he leaves his widow with 1,500 skulls. Poor woman. What do you want to do with 1,500 skulls? So, you know, Morton has his good friends. So his good friends say to his widow, okay, we're going to raise this money, and we'll buy the skulls from you. And they do. And so they raise the money, buy the skulls from her, and they give them to Philadelphia's Academy of Natural Sciences, which becomes really one of the great first... Great American Natural mm-hmm. History Museums, and so we have you know collections of birds, and Morton's skulls have their own special place in a case and it's open you know on Tuesdays and Wednesdays or whatever, free of charge. People come and look at these skulls um the, the, the they get sent so they're there for a while and they're on display for a while they get picked over and sort of put back into boxes after Sort of in decreasing level of popularity as other collections grow, they get sent off to Madrid in 1893 to sort of represent uh, Madrid's doing its own festival to celebrate Columbus's discovery of the New World. They become a piece of the American display there, a kind of grisly but somewhat apt representation of what Columbus had accomplished in sort of death of Native Americans. So he, he, they go there and then they get they get sent back to the United States and they're never really put on display again. They're set in boxes and I I found a sort of curator in the thirties kind of going through them saying oh, what are we going to do? They're all these missing pieces. This is such a valuable collection. Lecturers, including the great anthropologist friends, Boas, oh, come and borrow them, borrow from them every so often. Mm-hmm. Anyway, eventually they get sent over uh, to the um, Museum of Anthropology, Archaeology and Anthropology um, at the University of Pennsylvania um, where they still are. They're down in the basement mm-hmm. at Penn. At Penn. Uh, a few of them have been, several of them actually, have been given back under uh, NAGPRA, so they've been repatriated. Mm-hmm. Um, one time I went down to see them and all of the Seminole skulls, which Martin had a lot of those because of the Seminole War. They were all kind of wrapped up in kind of little Tupperware bins mm-hmm. waiting for people to get, so they, they've been handled really well, they kind of, some are in these drawers, and I was fascinated that one of the ones, Morton's skulls have, they look like uh, little fortune cookie labels on them and Mm -hmm. sort of Morton's handwriting. And he has a big, his biggest Caucasian skull happened to belong to this guy, Pierce, the cannibal. I was really interested. Pierce, this undergraduate was taking me through them, and I went, oh my gosh, there's Pierce. And he was like, how do you know about Pierce? I thought, oh, <laughs> oh no, I know about these people. He goes, and, and Pierce, Pierce sort of sits there all alone. Yeah. This, un, this unhappy cannibal criminal has no relatives to come back mm-hmm. and reclaim him. Mm-hmm. So as the Native American skulls, because they were precisely located with tribal identity, they go back to the various tribal peoples who want them. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, tribes and Groups of people have different kind of attitudes toward mm-hmm. what they do with them, but mm-hmm. that—that's the sort of brief history of. So you world can't. World. So
0: you can't go see it now. Well, not...
1: they're not. But yes, if you if you beg and you ask, beg, yeah. you can go see them. They're they're not on display, but there they are. In these, yeah. what's left of them is in these drawers in the museum.
0: I see. Well, you know, we're we're um, we're not quite out of time yet, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something else, which I knew nothing about. I I, well, I guess I just heard hints of it, and that is the American. Uh, Uh, The the Army Medical Museum, you have what is really a fantastically interesting chapter on that. It seems like a very gruesome place. Well, tell us a little bit about it and how these people were, uh, in a sense, uh, Morton's um, uh, successors.
1: It, that it, it's really interesting. What happens, you know, if you look at that, one of Morton's problems and Morton's friends' problems is that they can't get very many uh, skulls of people like them. They can't get very many uh, Caucasian or white people skulls. Ah, but the war solved mm-hmm. that problem. Mm-hmm. The Civil War produces massive numbers of dead. And so anybody who's read, you know, Drew Fow's really wonderful book uh, understands Republic of Suffering, understands that the war actually created a crisis for how a culture dealt with death. Mm -hmm. There's just a little tiny kind of window into that that I use to talk about the Army Medical Museum, where the war provides an opportunity for the surgeons and medical establishment to finally collect an array of human specimens that do several things. Simply for them, they offer surgical lessons on what battlefield surgery is going to look like. So they become these sort of useful lessons. They get a lot of skulls as well, and they're collected initially to show you bullet wounds or bayonet wounds or mini balls to the left temple or right temple. Uh, there's was hesitation in the beginning, but the, the medical museum finally gets off the ground. When the war ends, the army goes out, different people in the army, and continues the battle against Native Americans. And the Medical Museum, a really sort of famous letter that's one of the sort of smoking guns of the politics of repatriation, where the Surgeon General asks Army surgeons to please send Native American skulls uh, back to the Army Medical Museum. Uh, explorers are out on the plains; everybody's out there, but this is what bulks up the collection. It becomes this extraordinarily large collection, so much so that, you know, there are thousands of Native American skulls coming in. And, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of looking at this catalog, just thousands of them. And slowly the army's uh, collection from the Civil War battlefield moves over into this separate small category of the white race. So I I saw these people who were once cataloged for the mini ball to the left temple, uh, Confederate soldier all of a sudden just become white, they become this little category of white as the catalog fills and fills with these Native American skulls, and those are the skulls that become what should we say This sort of political scandal by the eighties that pushes um Congress and the native activists to pass the repatriation legislation that asks that these dead be returned to um, people who might be identified as their most likely descendants. Complicated set of questions about what what gets lost, but I think that the weight of evidence suggests that there's way too many, that this is not something that people will need or learn from in any particular way. So, the, it, and, the, and the Army Medical Museum also becomes a sort of tourist site where people could go and look at these heads on display, and there's a wonderful, funny literature about it that tries to create this little sense of danger, like, do not go there late at night, you'll see skeletons, and, mm-hmm. you know. And and this is where the head of my, this really interesting Fijian man winds up. And so mm-hmm. that became another one of my long meanders about how, what are the accidents or contingencies of a life that makes one one's head wind up in one of these collections. Mm-hmm. Because I kept trying to think, well, nobody thought that's what was going to happen to their body. No, no. I, I'm going I'm to be in a museum. But yeah. well, maybe so, we
0: could all hope. Yeah. So let me ask this. Is Anyone still collecting heads?
1: Yeah, I think you can I think you can buy them on ebay. <laughs> no.
0: no. Can you?
1: I think they're going to be illegal. No yeah. there there are some that turn up on eBay and you know, people I've often sort of thought about that exhibit Body Worlds. Um
0: yep. which,
1: you know, there's enough of the literature about it for people to acknowledge that there might be something problematic in how these bodies were collected. Mm-hmm. They try to make you not think that by mm-hmm. saying, "Well, this was all permitted uh and if they had if they were indeed Chinese prisoners, you could see why it's a little bit problematic yeah. i yeah, I can't imagine you know we go to the cat- you can go to the catacombs in paris, you can go to the sort of churches outside of Rome and see these bodies on display. Would anybody now collect these skulls No, no, and mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that interests me, you know, why why was this so entirely thinkable in the middle years of the 19th century, and how do we understand how it became unthinkable? I mean, mm-hmm. certainly, you know, the images of the concentration camps are a piece of why it became unthinkable, and the Nazi exaggeration of eugenic science also makes it unthinkable. But it, it, that, that, so the 20th century really makes these 19th century practices unthinkable.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How should we, and this is my final question, how should we understand Morton today, if we're to give a measured judgment of what he did and was, how how are we best to think about him and his project?
1: Uh, that's really interesting. Um I I think in a funny way, he represents a certain kind of American intellectual aspiration. I mean, this is me talking as an Americanist. To say, how how could the United States join this larger intellectual conversation, particularly when Europeans tended to condescend uh, to American cultural and intellectual uh, sort of aspirations? So Morton, in a way, represents a, a, a sort of nice edge of Philadelphia culture. He also, you know, represents the need for scientific networks to establish a set of ideas. So, you know, the sort of world of friendship that he comes out of, I think is really important to understanding kind of who he is and kind of how science works at different times. Um, That said, I think he also represents um, a, a kind of way of seeing the particular histories of violence, that lie behind the American project, that American expansion um, both through the West um, and actually its connections around the world are really registered in his collection. Mm -hmm. And he recruits this expansion into a violently racist project of the 1840s and 1850s. And so, you know, I guess what it is is it's a mix of you know, the good of a kind of intellectual aspiration and a, a kind of wonderful driving curiosity with the bad of the power structures and the racism of that point. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. my my balance. System.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good characterization. I, I think that it, we all too often, I don't know about we as professional historians, but people tend to dismiss people like Morton as racist and nothing more. They were that. No question about it. But they're also involved in other things and things that we esteem. One of the most fascinating things for me is to look back at a person and see the ways in which um, we would approve of what they were doing and then the ways in which we wouldn't, how they can hold two ideas which to us are completely contradictory in their minds without any difficulty whatsoever. And okay. in, in, in Morton's sense, you know, I mean, he was kind of a scientist, but in the other hand, he was racist. Uh, how, do right. we, how do we put these things together? And I think that's part of our project is – as, as historians, to understand exactly, exactly how one could do that. And I think you did a really terrific job in the book. I really, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, we've been talking to Anne Fabian today about her book, The Skull Collectors, Race, Science, and America's Unburied Dead. As I said, it's a terrific book, and I suggest that you go out and buy it. Anne, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, let me ask you our final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project?
1: Well, I've just been kind of hatching a little project about this sort of second tier of I call it, right now I'm calling it men and beasts, of um, sort of naturalists and explorers who are traveling around the United States with these various ideas, so one of Morton's friends who has a kind of fake fossil whale, a, ma- a wonderful, a one- the wonderfully named Marmaduke Burroughs, one of the <laughs> first people to bring a rhinoceros to the United States. So I'm, I'm sort of piecing together a collection of, of, of sort of fables of mm-hmm. these... Um, uh, sort of late enlightenment American scientist so I'm mm-hmm. just kind of at the beginning of that I've mm-hmm. started to do the research and
0: put the well, pieces it sounds, together it sounds like a really good project and I, I really wish you luck on it thank you again for being on the show again we'll be talking to Ann Fabian about the skull collectors thanks Ann thanks Marshall okay take care bye 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 you've been listening to an interview with Ann Fabian about her book The Skull Collectors Race, Science and America's Unburied Dead I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History I hope you have a great week Thank you.